Hello, welcome to this episode of Great Conversations. My guest today is Susan Albertine. Susan is the senior scholar at the American Association of Colleges and Universities, headquartered in Washington, D.C. Susan, thank you so much for joining us today in the Great Conversation studio and for joining us in a great conversation about higher education and higher education in all of its incarnations. If you would, um, just jump in with me to this first question about what we might see, and in this particular case, you mm -hmm. might mm -hmm. see, as one of the greatest challenges, and you can name two or three if you're so inclined, mm -hmm. the greatest challenges you see confronting higher education today. I think what I'd like to do is just hold the idea and the ideal of democracy right here in my two hands. Um, there's no crystal ball, but there's this beautiful concept of democracy. And it feels fragile right now. And maybe it always has been fragile, but it feels more fragile now, right now. And if, because of the political conditions that we're in, I believe that the future of our democracy really depends on education. That's not my own idea. People have been saying that for a couple of hundred years. You can see the founders talking about it. So if education is strong, democracy can be strong. And the challenges to our democracy right now are really educational challenges. How do we imagine um, future citizens and people who want to be citizens, how do we imagine giving them the means to keep a pluralistic democracy going? So rather than despairing about that, I have begun to think of ways to prompt people to think of compassionate education for the future of democracy. I see a huge challenge to higher education in the increasing stratification of our society and the erosion of the middle class, loss of social mobility. Yes. Um, and it, it's, it, that's a huge challenge. Um, the question is what higher education can do to address that challenge and the way that individuals and institutions and educators of all kinds can step up and see it and understand. If democracy in the U.S. survives, it's because one of the big reasons is because we've got an educated citizenry. It's been absolutely key to this experiment in the this republic. Thomas Jefferson said oh, yeah. it must be a collection of educated citizens they all, who will come yes. together and made this yes. very strong yes. statement. Yes. So of course we've always recognized the role of the university mm -hmm. as building the commonwealth in terms of investment in research and right. leveraging of, right. res of, of resources for building mm -hmm. community and for mm -hmm. investing in the commonwealth. But Susan, there has been less conversation about teaching right. and how teaching itself really rivals research in terms of the strength 
and the impact that it can have day to day on the mm -hmm. life of mind of students. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about what you see as compassionate teaching. Compassionate teaching is the kind of teaching you do when you accept your responsibility to educate future citizens and to elevate that thinking about your responsibility as an educator um, and I want to make sure that I say educators include everyone. It's a hugely embracing word. Um, equitable inclusion <laughs> of all educators including people who work in buildings and grounds and in food services. Anybody who's on a campus yes. in the system is, is an educator. Recognizing that the work we do with young people is as important as anything else that we do. Um, that is not to say creative production of knowledge and the curatorial function of the university is, is less significant, but it really is to elevate the position of educator. Um, and it, we can't do it in a 20th century way. We have to do it in a 21st century way. Talk, so. talk about that, Susan. How, what, what looks different between the 20th century way and the 21st century of, of way. being an educator, yeah. being a faculty member. Well, if you're, first of all, very few of us end up on a tenure track yes. and pursuing a highly individualized career. Yes. But that was the model that we, most of us, I certainly had in yes. my graduate sure. education. And, and you go out there and the first thing you want to do, my field is English, you publish. Yes. And you ought to be a good teacher, but the teaching was never emphasize and certainly at a research university you were never prepared to think about working at a broad access institution. Yes. The fact of my career has been totally different. I mean I've ended up working primarily with broad access institutions and actually gave up tenure because I found for myself it wasn't giving me opportunities to do what I yes. wanted yes. in my career. The, the Boyer model is extremely helpful yes. and that actually came out of the last century but I think is pertinent to what we're seeing in this century and yes. it needs to be continually updated. What, so, what are some of the, what you would say, the newest features of the classic student today, the classic 21st century student, for example, as opposed to the classic 20th century student? Well, let's see. Back to what I said about social mobility. About 70% of students now, think of a universe of about yes. 20 million yes. undergraduates all, all over the spectrum, about 70% of them are poor. Yes, yes. Or they're yes. struggling. Yes. Uh, and they still want to go to college. Yes. And they're all ages. They're yes. enormously diverse. They don't just start when they're 17 or 18 and go straight through yes. in four years. They really struggle. Yes. They really, really struggle. 70% That's are huge. struggling. This is huge in that, that universe. That is enormous mm -hmm. and at a time when the middle class is eroding. So what does that mean for me as an educator yes. is, is the big question. Sure. And it doesn't mean that I don't do research. Right. But it might mean that I think in very different ways about how I engage with students and other colleagues Yes. In the scholarship of teaching. 
It's, it, it's a new thing. If we know that 70% of our students mm -hmm. are, let's say, described appropriately by these sorts of attributes, mm -hmm. and we ask ourselves, is a like percentage of resources being spent mm -hmm. to address in the mm -hmm. highest quality their particular educational needs? I think if if I were looking at that, I would say there's no way that we are allocating 70% of our resources no. at the university to this 70%. Mm -hmm. And yet it would seem well situated that we would reallocate or at least re-leverage some of these resources mm -hmm. that we have. Susan, how do we need to retool that 20th century machine to be 21st century agile? Okay. Well, I was honored to work on a book together with some other colleagues. Uh, we titled the book Becoming a Student Ready College. I, I, I guess I, that's a plug for the book, but the, the concept of becoming ready for the students we have and will have, to me, signals an enormous change in the way we think about ourselves as educators. Um, and it is, if we are Instead of saying we have to make them ready to be with us, we need to make ourselves ready so that they can thrive. That's the compassion. That's how education allows for a future democracy. And if you take that seriously, it upends all kinds of things about the way you think about yourself as an educator. Sure, even the very, mm -hmm. I'm thinking the very organizational matrix, the kind of top down, the Absolutely. sort of scholastic method mm -hmm. that the academy has relied on. Do, do those things even work for this kind of multifaceted media savvy student? Well, actually I think we, they can. Some, I think we need to invite students into problem solving mm. with us as faculty. Yes. And that is that kind of um, a radical rethinking about what goes on in the classroom. And it, it's not just moving from sage on the sage to guide on the side. It's actually empowering students to identify problems that are housed within whatever the disciplinary or multidisciplinary work you're doing and to go after those in yes. ways that um, engage their passions. And, and that is a different way of thinking, of a more holistic way of thinking about student experience and becoming ready for students at their own kind of apprenticeship level to yes. say, um, in an English class, I am thinking about how I can solve a problem in the world that I see right now in connection to the work of literature. Yes. And I never used to do that. No. But I now have some ideas about how I might do that. Yes. And I think that's point. really very exciting. So if you think making ourselves ready for the students that we have, we need to make sure, and we, I wrote about this in chapter two of that book, Becoming a Student Ready College, thinking of all educators, of all people who work on a campus as educators, thinking about the equitable advancement of all different students on the campus, I need to go out and be a partner with people who uh, run work study and who are in buildings and grounds and think of that population of educators and how they work with students. Yes. 
often in work study in ways that actually converge with the curriculum. Oh, that's a great point. It's a wonderful idea. And there are some institutions that are already doing it. I didn't make this Absolutely. up. Absolutely. So it's very interesting that you make that note about everyone on campus being an educator. Right. All too often when we think of that 21st century learner, the knee jerk is, oh, technology, virtual classroom. But Susan, what you're really suggesting is the power of the face-to-face -face personal experience Absolutely. in every way on that right. campus. And the capacity of all students to learn. Yes. Uh, I, I get some push back by saying this, but remember every single student who walks onto a college campus is a success. We have this notion that student success is somehow the thing you achieve across two, three, four, five, six years, but I would say every student comes in as a success and we haven't understood that. And I'm talking about every student who comes to a broad or open access institution as well as students who come to selective colleges or students who get into selective colleges and are first generation, they are highly successful. Doesn't mean coddle them, but it does mean understand a life perspective and work with it rather than concentrating on the deficits. Do you think that as a field, mm -hmm. teaching itself can benefit even more broadly from this discipline of research called the Scholarship of Teaching and Learning, or SODL. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me a little bit about your vision for where the Scholarship of Teaching needs to go, because as we know, that is a wonderful tool. SODL literature guides not only at the graduate level, but at all levels of teaching, uh, beginning, middle, and, and mm -hmm. toward the end of the mm -hmm. career. So where ought our research and teaching go, perhaps? to help us better prepare our classrooms I, for these students. I love the idea of scholarship of teaching and learning. I also think it's a little bit trapped in some 20th century mm. thinking, maybe not 21st well, century let's thinking. Let's talk about that, yeah. Um, it, it seems to me that disciplines need to understand themselves as participants in a much broader, even indeed global mm. conversation about teaching and learning that's related to the field. Yeah. And I'm, I'm much more intrigued by the growth of activity related to tuning. Yes, absolutely. Global interest. There is a global movement for liberal education. Agreed. What does that mean yes. in an Asian context, an East Asian context, in a Middle Eastern yes. context? You know, I those are fascinating conversations and and disciplinary experts can dive right in and be absolutely engaged in in the highest level of scholarship and bring students along in those discussions yes. so um, I'm interested in you know the future of, of scholarship and practice in the humanities and in, in global context of course. and that has of course that there's a bearing on pedagogy how what are the pedagogies that make sense when yes. you when you bring 19th century american literature into global context let's ask the hard question okay so this pedagogical mechanism of higher education that has been lumbering along for at least a few hundred years we've tweaked some things here we've made some modifications mm -hmm. Susan, what are we going to be able to keep? And what are we going to have to toss out 
in order to retool our classroom pedagogy, whether that's a face-to-face -face classroom or online, to really be able to rise up and meet these challenges? Well, I think the, the idea that you can't let go of content, that, that we're conveyors of content, uh, pourers of knowledge into empty brains, has just got to go. But I think a lot of people have already figured that out. But then what if you don't lecture? You know, then what do you do? Well, that's where you might want help unless you've come right out of a master's program in yes. instructional design and you're a writer yes. and then you're ready to, you know, to go, you know. Right. Um, but finding ways to help people do creative things with a large lecture, it's a very practical question. And maybe even another part of that pedagogical shift is shifting from this data and information communication right. because that's already there and working at a higher level almost a metacognitive level right with the, always with, with and with the students and, yes. and this is not just about flipping lectures it's, oh of course it's, not it's it's really thinking in in new ways about how they're learning how they're engaging with subject matter and where they put themselves during the learning process and yes. opening the boundaries yes. of what we think of as of the classroom. So open learning is, is hugely important and we really have to be thinking about that. If we're thinking about the role of educators, the role of yes. faculty in this, we really have to look under some of the rocks we haven't looked under. And, and, and what are some of those, Susan? Well, Name I a mentioned a bit um, ago, what the heck does your institution do to reward you for taking on these new activities, for going out and and meeting with the head of facilities and figuring yeah, out how to get an point. apprenticeship program for the English majors. Yeah. What are we doing? How are we rewarded for that? What, what are the rules? Yeah. You know, does the person who runs facilities get some kind of benefit? Sure. Um, how does that count toward my, my reappointment if, if mm. I don't? You know, if I'm not tenurable, so the, yes. the institution has to have um, guidance, has to guide itself yes. in yes. rethinking ordinary practices. It's a great point, and it seems as though some good hard reflection is needed, right? right? For us all to really think about what our manner has been, our way of doing business right. has been, where we really want to go and how we navigate that in between, right, right, to get there. So Susan, how do we as individual teachers, individual instructors, become change agents on our campus to begin to really cause some ripples of change across our institutions. Mm -hmm. What can we do? Well, it's all about collaboration and communication, and I think that's uh, two big lessons that I learned out of coming out of the Faculty Collaboratives Project, that we there's no shortage out there, that we've got innovative educators all over the place. They're legion. Um, sometimes they feel a little lonely at home, so finding ways to reach out and use the, the networking tools that we have right now yes. is really important. And a, and a strong leader at an institution will encourage that kind of inter, as well as intra-institutional networking. Yes. Um, and I, I, there are lots of different ways you know, to begin that work. You can get involved in associations. There's, they're all over the place. I mean, I'm a fan of AAC&U, the Association of American Colleges and Universities, as a way to find other 
innovators, yes. but they're, they're, there's lots going on in the open learning community. There's a lot going on in many of the disciplinary associations where people are thinking ahead and rethinking their identity. Um, that's important. That work needs to be rewarded, but I don't think you need to wait for the rewards to just faculty senates need to step up and start doing that other work. But meanwhile, collaborating, finding a group to talk with, getting beyond your comfort zone a little bit and is, I think is a good way to begin. I think you've named the elephant in the room, too, mm -hmm. is that universities, at least big R1s and maybe all universities, mm -hmm. have a tradition and history of being very good at rewarding publication and research. Right. I'm not sure that we have as good a track record at rewarding good teaching. In fact, as you noted earlier in our conversation, mm -hmm. we, we graduate and we know it's publish, 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 and, and we see that in mm -hmm. the trajectory toward mm -hmm. tenure. We're not really as clear about the role of teaching in our trajectory toward right. tenure. I, I think that's actually changing. Talk a little bit about well, that, Susan. I, what do you see? What I actually see, but uh, the two institutions that got me really on the road to being a professor, um, both research institutions are taking very active steps to change student experience and, uh, and faculty work. Both of them are doing that. Um, I, as you know, through alumni activities, I've, I've been watching say, what Cornell University is doing and Engage Cornell is huge. It's a huge project. So they're, they're going for universal high engagement for students and that's changing all kinds of practices and yes. it's drawing in all kinds of faculty and giving them ways to start working at the very creative margins of the field. Yes. So I think that's possible. Uh, the, the other, I've learned a lot recently too by reconnecting with the University of Chicago, I did my PhD, they're thinking about preparing doctoral students for a whole array of careers now. Beautiful. And that is changing the way they're thinking about yes. teaching and learning in, in, in the graduate programs. Sure. They really are rethinking that now. And, and that's so encouraging. Yes. And, and I love it too that you're seeing this happen happening across the country. I think so. It's a really a movement. I think it's a movement. Here yes. at Indiana University, our our focus is also, it's always been on teaching, but it is also being refined more to amplify the work that we're doing in teaching. Right, and your responsibility as, as a teacher yes. to think about the lives of your students instead of replicating yourself, yes, <laughs> which is what we were taught. Yes. Only a small percentage of your English majors are going to go on and be like you. Yes. Um, you really need to prepare the students for the lives they're really going to live. And I, I, there are some wonderful examples of how institutions are doing that. I and mean, one of my favorites is Elon University's idea in, in teaching writing that you're teaching them to write for the day after graduation. Oh, I love that. And and that's what you're doing. Absolutely true. And that true. totally reorients <laughs> the way you think about the writing program. So as we're winding our conversation down today, if you could put in one or two sentences what you might like to see as a, a, a positive change on college campuses writ large, a change in our way of being to better serve the student of the 21st mm -hmm. century, what might be one or two changes writ large that all campuses 
could participate in that you feel would really be a game changer? Mm -hmm. Well, the, the first one is, is be ready for the students who are coming to you. I think that's the most important thing. And that and will require some research, some preparation. In, in the way we think about. Beautiful. That they all come in as successes. That upsets people, I found when I say that, mm -hmm. that means you gotta stop and rethink. Yeah. Take that responsibility. And institutions are citizens in their own way mm -hmm. in their communities. And so um, thinking about the, the way an institution lives in partnership with the community in which it's housed is incredibly important and I think a lot of good work can can come from there so if you if you start about that way of thinking about the democratic participation yes. of the institution in the community and the democratic ideal of uh, uh, believing that all of the students who come to you have yes. the capacity to learn, then a lot of practical changes will follow, but those are, those are the most important things. In introducing the collaboratives, you noted that you were most devoted to this work because you asked yourself, what if this was the last big project yes. on which mm -hmm. you would work. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to relate to you that this may be my last big project and listening to you say that really uh, impacted my life and my work. Mm -hmm. So I mm -hmm. want to publicly thank you for that. But I also want to hold out a challenge to all the instructors, the faculty at all levels watching this conversation mm -hmm. between you and me today. Mm -hmm. Might we be able to jointly ask them what if the teaching they're doing was the last great work that mm -hmm. they would do in mm -hmm. their lives? Mm -hmm. Do you think that that challenge, Susan, might be one that would catalyze? Well, maybe for some people <laughs> it did for me. Seriously, yeah, I thought totally. if I could do one more project, what would it look like? Yes. And, it, and I realized it would be totally focused on, on faculty and continuity of learning and leadership yes. among faculty and that was the faculty collaboratives project and that was my dream project I it really it really was so i guess i would say go for a big dream like that in in the way you think about your work it's not just your head it's your heart as well yeah your dream and vision of the collaboratives mm -hmm. has helped give birth to this great oh. conversation oh. series and to well, the website teaching.iu.edu. Teaching oh, well, thank you. Susan Albertine, thank you so much for all of your contributions to higher education, mm -hmm. to uh, the great conversation series, to AAC and you, to LEAP, and to my personal life. Thank you very much. You've oh. changed me. Oh, thank you, Angie. It's such a pleasure to talk to you and stretch my mind in this way with you. Good. Thank you.